um, before we pick up in chapter 28 of Isaiah, I just want to remind you um, that the background for a good portion of Isaiah is 2 Kings 18 and 19. Um, this is when uh, Shenecherib, the Assyrian general, surrounds Jerusalem. He's already taken out most of Judah, and now he's got a siege set up against Jerusalem. He speaks very provocatively to the king's uh, spokesman as well as the people, basically threatening that he's going to demolish them, and God miraculously uh, interferes. And so uh, what happens, uh, the last part of that story in chapter 19, verse 35 of 2 Kings, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Shennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ereshaddon, his son, reigned in his place. A good deal of Isaiah's ministry takes place in the years leading up to this event, and that's true of Isaiah 28, 29, 30, and 31. Um, remember that for the most part, Isaiah has been taking different avenues to express to Israel the mistake of trusting in the nations around them against Assyria instead of trusting in God. And we will see that as his agenda tonight, but his argument uh, is even more pointed than we have seen thus far. So Isaiah chapter 28, verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich, valley of those overcome with wine. Okay, and so notice here, he opens, and he's looking back, talking about what happened to the northern tribes of Israel, collectively identified with the tribe of Ephraim here. And he sees them uh, as drunk, we'll follow that metaphor through, as a fading flower of glorious beauty, it says, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. And so here he's picturing the capital of Israel, Samaria, like a flower crown that sat on the head of Israel. Beautiful, but tremendously fragile. And that's the point. Verse two, behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to earth with his hand. And so here again, God identifies Assyria as his tool to bring judgment on Israel. Okay, and you can imagine what a cage match between a, clown of, or a crown of flowers and a tempest would be, right? There's no chance, and that's the point here. Remember again, this is past judgment. Isaiah is getting the audience, as he, we've seen over and over again with the prophets, to nod along in agreement. They agree with the theology of, uh, of what happened to Israel. They know that it was in response to their sins. And so it continues in verse 3, The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, that's Samaria again, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer when someone sees it and he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. And so the idea here is, uh, you know, it's approaching fig season and you've got that young child living at your house and he's watching the tree every day waiting for that first fully ripe fig. And as soon as he sees it, he just snaps it and he eats it. He says, so it's going to be with Ephraim. So Assyria is going to devour them in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Notice there in verse 5, we jump forward again to that day, right? It's looking forward, and here the crown will not be Samaria. They won't be trusting in their capital or in their government, but in the Lord himself. He will be their crown of glory. But notice it's going to be a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. There's a cost of rebellion, and as we've seen, a remnant is both a positive and a negative. Positive in that God leaves some standing, he maintains a group of faithful. Negative in the sense that it's just a remnant, not the whole. Verse 6, 
and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Okay, now notice the transition in verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Okay, and so now he's taking this historical happening, theologically interpreted, what happened to Ephraim, what happened to the northern tribes of Israel, what happened to Samaria was the judgment of God, and he says, so it is in Judah. So it is with your people. Your people are also drunk and notice here, it, sp- it points to a couple of different ones. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Now, Isaiah is not being literal here, but he's taking their poor judgment uh, and their lack of word from the Lord and their false prophecy and their bad leadership. And he's basically saying it's like what happens when somebody has too much to drink. He says their decisions are, are nonsensical. He says all they're making is a big mess. Again, look at verse 8. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast, for it's precept upon precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, here or there a little, there a little. Now there's two possibilities here. Either these are the critiques of Isaiah's enemies, and they're like, look, what do we have to fear from Isaiah? His teaching is so simple it should be for toddlers. Repentance, check, understand that. We understand the law. We've had this, we're just as much Jews as you are, Isaiah. Um, That last verse there, 10, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's actually just repeated words in the Hebrew, just one after another. Um, All of the added, the upons uh, and the there a littles, those are all added. It's just precept, 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 line, 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 okay? Now, there is another suggestion here, which I think is more likely, that this is actually Isaiah's critique of these drunken priests and prophets. And basically, he says that their teaching is unhelpful because of its simplicity. And uh, it's interesting here, uh, the language, precept, 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 line, 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 here, 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 okay? It's, It's interesting that it sounds like stuttering. It sounds like babble. In fact, notice what Isaiah says is going to happen, verse 11, for by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. He says, okay, your prophets have been speaking like drunks. I'm going to speak and I'm going to use the tongue of another nation to do it. I'm going to use the Assyrians to come in and speak. I'm going to use a foreign language you don't know and I will convey through that my word, which is a word of judgment. Verse 12, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Okay, he's been calling them to wait, to stop, to stand still, to trust that God will deliver them from Assyria, and as we'll see, not Egypt. It's a message of hope, it's a message of strength, it's a message of literally, I've got this, but they're unwilling to hear it. And so, verse 13, the word of the Lord will be to them, Precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, here's what's interesting. Those words in the Hebrew are very similar to Akkadian words, okay, foreign words. Uh, And it's not that they would have been understood by Isaiah's audience, but they do kind of stand in for the babble that they would hear of these foreigners, of these barbarians, because what a barbarian says is bar, 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 right? You don't understand what's being said. That's, um, that's the idea there. And so he says, you've trusted in the babbling of your priests and prophets who don't speak for the Lord, and so you're going to hear from the Lord through a babbling of a foreign nation, okay? And then notice that they may go and fall backward, be broken, snared, and taken, All of those words, go, fall back, be broken, be snared, taken, those are all imperatives, okay? They're probably the barking of the commands of the generals, okay? The idea here is uh, look all the way forward to Judah going into captivity under Babylon, being marched 
all the way away from their land and the people. This is the word of the Lord to them. March! Stop here for the night, right? It's all through this foreign voice. This seems to be the idea that Isaiah is laying out here. But remember, he's already gotten Israel to agree. They see the theological and historical reality of this for others, but they can't see it for themselves. Like the other uh, prophets will criticize, the um, false prophets have basically one message. Peace, prosperity, everything's fine. But God has not spoken through them. And so Isaiah speaks as a warning here. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Now, if you were here this morning, we talked about Ezekiel 34 and God condemning the shepherds, the rulers and the leaders of Israel um, for poor leadership. And it's the same thing here. The greatest and most significant problem are the advisors of King Hezekiah who have come up with this plan to save Judah. And that plan, again, is Egypt. Verse 15, because you've said, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we've made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Now, can you tell there Isaiah's quotation is a little bit incorrect? Right? They didn't actually say, we've made a covenant of death and we've trusted in lies. But that's what it means to trust in Egypt. Okay? They've made a pact with Egypt, but Egypt will not follow through. When Assyria shows up and flexes their muscles, Egypt doesn't come to Israel's rescue. And this is a very expensive ally. Okay? Uh, and so he says, you think you're fine because you've trusted in lies but it's not going to work. You think you've made a covenant of protection, but it's a covenant with death itself. You think that you've taken shelter in a true friend, but it's a falsehood. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Okay? And so this is one of the first places in Scripture that starts to talk about God's plan for a cornerstone. But here, notice, it's not specifically pointing forward to the Messiah, not specifically pointing forward to Jesus, although in up-and-coming passages and up-and-coming prophets, that will become very clear. Remember, that's one of the message, uh, messages that the apostles preach in their epistles and in the book of Acts, is that God has laid a new cornerstone. And anyone who builds on any other foundation, right, but here, Isaiah is basically just generally talking about the foundation of God's word, of his promises. If God says, you will be safe, I will protect you, that you can take to the bank. That's solid. And he says, those who trust won't be rushing around looking for other solutions. Nothing demonstrates your faith in the Lord's promises by, like inactivity. Nothing shows that you believe God will do what he said he will do and show up when he says he will show up like waiting upon the Lord. That's why waiting is this verb that's used over and over again through the Bible to just express worship as a whole. I wait upon the Lord. Okay. Abraham waited for 10 years for the reception of his son and then he stopped waiting. And that's when things went wrong. That's when, through the suggestion of his wife, he took his own route to give himself a child. And that's where Ishmael comes from. But those who believe will not be in haste. They won't be in a hurry. They'll wait for the Lord. Verse 17, he says, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. He says, because you didn't trust in the cornerstone, I'm going to bring about a cleansing. There's going to be a storm, and it's going to wash away these false covenants. Okay. Remember what happens here, okay? Hezekiah, under advice from his constituency, trusts in Egypt. Egypt lets them down, and then because of that, Judah, all the way up to the capital, Jerusalem, is conquered and surrounded. The enemy is literally at the gates, and like we read at the beginning of tonight, God miraculously delivers, okay? He's making a point. He strips them of all other possibilities until it's, God, you are our only hope. Save us. 
and then he's going to be faithful, he's going to show up, but in doing so, the truth trumps the lies. The faithfulness of God uh, demonstrates the unfaithfulness of Egypt. Verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you from morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. I think that phrase, sheer terror, is helpful because I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around a siege. Living in a country where, apart from 9-11, there's been no fighting on American soil for you know, more than 100 years, uh, it's hard for us to imagine what it'd be like to hear that Ellensburg's been captured, to hear that they're coming over the ridge of Snoqualmie, to build up bolstering foundational walls and ramparts around Seattle to protect ourselves and realize that we're completely trapped as this massive enemy is sitting at the gates. Sheer terror is what it's going to take for them to understand. Okay. Verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. What are they trying to rest in? What is the bed that they've made for themselves? It's this covenant with Egypt. He says, you're going to be short-sheeted. Okay? You're going to try and lay in the bed, but it won't keep you warm. It won't keep you safe. You won't sleep well because it's going to fail you. And then verse 21, the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed strange is his deed and work his work alien is his work and so it says here God's going to do an alien thing a foreign thing a strange thing a a peculiar thing I believe is what it says in the King James what is this peculiar work here it's judgment okay in the New Testament it says the Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance that's God's primary desire that's God's primary plan. Judgment is, if you will, and I I don't love using this language for an all-sovereign and all-knowing God, but it's his plan B. It's his other option. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that God uses pain in the life of the rebel like planting a flag in a rebellious heart. He says, whereas God speaks to us in our pleasures, he shouts at us in our pain. It's God's megaphone, he says, to rouse a deaf world, okay? But it's peculiar, it's plan B, it's the way God has to take to make himself heard. It's alien and strange. Verse 22, now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice, give attention, hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continuously? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? And so he says, let me give you a parable. Let me make an illustration. When a farmer goes out and he plows a field, does he just plow and plow 365 days a year? No, obviously not. Verse 25, when he's leveled the surface, does he not scatter dill and sow and cumin and put wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? In other words, doesn't he stop plowing and plant stuff? Of course he does. But notice verse 26, why does he do this? For he is rightly instructed is God teaches him. God has instructed us how to farm and we've learned the rules. We know the way things work and so we follow them. No farmer wakes up in the morning and goes, I wonder if this year I can just plow all year and still have a good harvest, right? Farming can be very complex in the details, but the basic ideas are very simple. Seed goes in the ground, seed gets water and sun, seed grows and produces fruit. That's all there is to it. Basically, what he's suggesting here is, Israel, you're changing the game. But if that wasn't enough, he swings to the other end and he goes, what about when the harvest is here? Verse 27, dill is not threshed with a threshing sled, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. And let's be honest, as city folk, we're going to have to take his word for it, right? Um, But he says, does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. In other words, he says there's also a way that you go about harvesting. There's a way you go about reaping. And he says in verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. 
He says, how can you get how the rules work in your garden and not understand how it works in the big reality of Israel? How can you trust God and the rules he's laid out here and think that disobedience and denying the word of God will turn out any differently? And understand, this isn't just a word for the people of Israel in their danger of trusting in Egypt. This is a word for all human beings. Paul picks up this same metaphor of farming in the New Testament. He says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. He says, in the same way that in farming, what you plant is what you produce, so also it is with your lives. He says, if you sow unto the flesh, you will reap death. But if you sow unto the Spirit, you will reap life. Okay? This does not mean, and as we've already seen with Israel, this does not mean that God is willing and capable of forgiving. It doesn't mean that God can't bring us by his grace back into our favor, but it does mean that our choices have consequences. Okay? And we shouldn't think that the rules won't function any more than the rule of gravity won't function. This is the way life works. And so what he's saying here is there's still time for you not to plant. There's still time for you to stop watering the crop, till it all out, and sow obedience instead, and reap a different harvest. Okay? And just in the same way that planting, uh, you know, a field full of weeds and then being disappointed when you're hungry come winter, it's the same stupidity that he's warning them against, trusting in Egypt instead of the Lord. Now he gets very specific with the siege itself in 29. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Okay, and so now he pictures Jerusalem, he pictures Mount Zion, and he titles it Ariel here, which means the lion or even the lion of God. Okay, he says, in year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel and there shall be moaning and lamentation and he shall be to me like an Ariel. You notice that line in the middle? He says, year to year, let the feasts run their round. Okay. It may be that he's suggesting here that the siege that Jerusalem is under, that they just go on with business as usual. That they observe the high days, the Sabbath. Everything's normal because they think any day now, Egypt is going to show up. But it's not going to be that way. God is going to do something different he says, there is moaning lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Okay, uh, now this word Ariel can also be hero, which makes sense. Like we still recognize, we even sang tonight about the lion of Judah, right? Um, but it can also refer to the altar or the hearth, okay, depending on how this word is used. And so he's making a play on words here. It's supposed to be the lion of Judah. Remember the promise that God makes all the way back in the Pentateuch? He says, when you stand against your enemies, I will make you stronger than a hundred men. Right? God can do a great work because he's on their side. They're supposed to be like that, but instead they're going to be like a hearth. In other words, there's, there's a judgment coming. Verse 4, or verse 3, and I will camp against you all around and besiege you with towers, and I will rage, see, raise siege works against you. Again, we see God personifies his judgment in Assyria. It's not some random foreigners who are going to surround Jerusalem. It's God himself. Assyria is a tool in his hand. Verse 4, and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. From dust your speech shall be a whisper. What is this? It's humiliation. Okay. They're exalted on their plan. Aren't we smart to reach out to Egypt? Isn't it worth it, this investment we've made in hiring protection? And he says, but I'm going to bring you all the way down so it'll just be like a voice coming from the basement. You'll be so low. Okay. Verse 5, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. Surprise, right? God says, I'm going to bring about judgment but I'm also going to bring those who are judging you to an end. Okay. We talk often uh, in Isaiah about tension, and here we see it again. How is it that God is going to bring Israel to the dust, but also deliver them? 
How is it that he's going to humble them, but also bring them to a place of trust? How is it that he is going to use the Assyrians to bring about a change in allegiance from Egypt to God, and yet at the same time deliver them? That's the idea here. In fact, notice he says, and in an instant, suddenly, verse 6, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts. And that's what we read about in 2 Kings chapter 19, right? In the middle of the night, when nobody is expecting it, they just wake up the next morning and 185,000 soldiers have been wiped out. God does that on his own. God does it. He doesn't need any help. He may use Assyria for judgment, but for deliverance, he doesn't need anybody. Okay, he's got this under wraps. And again here, we have uh, a theophany. We see God as a great warrior. Okay, look at the language here. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and a great, great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel and that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, like a vision of the night. Do you remember when we were in 2 Kings chapter 6 and Samaria was surrounded and they were starting to starve to death? And through the prophet Elijah, Elijah comes and he says, hey, t- this time tomorrow, everything's going to be restored. And the, the guard of the king basically says, if God opened the windows of heaven, could, thing, could such a thing be? Can it turn around that quickly? It's going to be the same here. He says it's going to be like you're going to wake up and you're going to wonder if the whole siege was a dream. And then verse 8, as when a hungry man dreams, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. When a thirsty man dreams, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. Okay. Think of the Assyrians here planning what they're going to do with all the loot, knowing that any day now they're going to break through and then it's over. The battle's gone. It's wiped away. He says, it's going to be like that. So shall all the multitudes of the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Verse 9, astonish yourself and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. He lays out everything that's going to happen. And then he says, all right, you're going to be too shocked to listen. Be shocked. You're going to be so blind and close your eyes. Be blind. You're going to drink on the false teachings of the prophets, drink it and be drunk. Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. Okay, so the, the eyes of Israel are the prophets and God has just shut them. Okay, but I want you to notice the order here. Again, they have rejected the truth and because of that, they can no longer hear it. In Romans chapter 1, we see a repeated verb when when God is talking about the way he works. And he says, basically, God gave them over. Okay. They put their fingers in their ears, so God stops speaking. Okay. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 11. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to you, to one who can read... uh, When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. Okay. So the idea here is you've got a scroll, you roll it up, you seal it with a seal. And if the seal doesn't have your name on it, you're not allowed to open it. And so you hand it to a person, they're totally literate, and say, read this. And he goes, I can, it's not open. Okay. I haven't opened the envelope yet. I can't see what's on the inside. In verse 12, when you give the book to one who cannot read, he says, read this. He says, I cannot read. That's what these prophecies are going to become like to Israel because they will not listen, so they will not understand. There's a hardness of heart here. In fact, look at verse 13. And the Lord has said, because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Okay. It says on the outside, their traditions are there. The praise be to God is there. The commandments are being taught. It's all there, but their hearts are far from me. Because of that, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Okay. 
And so notice what he's going to do here. He's going to bring the distractions to nothing. He's going to silence the other voices through what he does. Verse 15, all, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? Okay. And so he, get, he begins to picture here meetings that are happening after dark in private places. He's picturing here those who are coming up with plans as if God isn't present, as if God doesn't exist, as if God doesn't know. Okay. Now, in the general, this is pretty easy to imagine. Many people, in fact, we've probably done it in our life, have sat down and come up with a scheme okay. as if God couldn't hear, as if by locking our door and plotting in the dark, we were somehow protected from being uh, known for what we really are. Um, how this probably happened in Israel, though, goes back to this idea of Egypt. These private, quiet meetings that are behind closed doors are happening in the castle. They're happening as, as Hezekiah is being, being given this terrible advice. They're coming up with plans instead of listening to the one that God's already laid out. He says it's utter foolishness. Verse 16, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing that made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing that formed, uh, formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. You see, the problem that Isaiah is laying out is, again, like we talked about this morning, this problem of independence and autonomy. It says, I will chart my own path. I will be the master of my own destiny. I will come up with my plans and execute it and exalt myself, and I will win. And he says, if there is a will of God and it stands in opposition to you, then it's just as foolish as a piece of pottery saying, I am going to make myself whatever I want to be. I am going to shape myself in the way that I am shaped. It's just as foolish for us as creation to say to the creator, I've got a better idea. I'm going to go this route. Okay. Verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. I love this. He says this is a time of deafness. This is a time of word of God famine. This is a time where there's no listening, he says, but there's a time coming where even the deaf will hear the word of God. And even the blind will see God for who he really is. Verse 19, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds distinctly like the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? Right? When Jesus comes, he brings a word that breaks through the hardness of heart. He brings something that's new that deals with the great problem because why is Israel a people who honor God with their lips but not with their hearts? Because their hearts are twisted. Like Jeremiah says, they're desperately wicked and deceitful, and who can know them? And Jesus comes with a message that does something new, that changes even that, that begins a new thing. In fact, it says here, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and that's the opening line, right, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 20, for the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender. Okay. By a word make a man out to be an offender, that's false witness. Okay. That's somebody who testifies and says, I saw him that night, he's the one who did the crime, but they lie. Okay. And lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turns aside him who is in the right. Okay? And so not only is there going to be joy for the meek and sight for the blind, but there's also going to be justice. There's going to be an end of injustice. Okay? And then verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Notice he goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, The one who called Abraham. In fact, it's interesting here, it says that Abraham was redeemed, okay? Usually the Old Testament uses that word for the Exodus, right? When Israel goes into slavery and God redeems them and brings them out of that and makes them his people. 
But Abraham's a little bit different, right? He was just a free citizen of Ur of Chaldees, and God called him and said, come to a land that I will show you. But he uses the same word here. He's the redeemer of Abraham, right? Because God was doing something more than just dealing with physical slavery, and he did bring Abraham out of the worship of idols and into the worship of himself. That same God, he says, speaking of the house of Jacob, remember that's, uh, that's Abraham's grandson, still in the patriarchs there. He says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Now there's a little bit of a rebuke there. Because he basically says, even Jacob is going to be ashamed of you. You remember Jacob's life? Right? It takes him a while to figure out who God really is. He makes a lot of mistakes, but even he is face-palming over where Israel is at today. And he says, but there's coming a time where that shame will be wiped away, okay? where Israel will do what they were supposed to do. They'll sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. And so again, notice God's agenda here with this whole Assyrian surrounding Jerusalem is an act of discipline. It's to get Jerusalem and Judea back on track. It's to remind them of the fact that God is God and call them to repentance. Chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Again, he sees this, uh, this plan with Egypt to be foolishness, sinful, and even rebellion. Verse 2, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. As the people of God, we are constantly to be cultivating an instinct of going to God for help. Okay. Now, born in the flesh, coming from a background of sin, that is not our natural instinct. In fact, I found when I work with people who have had really rough lives, they begin to shape this self-preservation survival mentality and they become tremendously hard to help because they only want the help that they want. They only want to pursue the plans that they lay and they're suspicious of anyone else. Now, a lot of times the truth is rightly so, but they left someone off the list Right? Because a lot of times, woven into this story of other people's mistreatment in them is also the poor decisions and the sins of themselves, and yet they still trust in themselves because they have no one else. Okay. And so here he says that they're going off to Egypt. They have a plan, but it's not God's plan. They're, they're backed into a corner, and they think, what are we going to do? And instead of that impulse that says, call upon the name of the Lord, they go, Okay, who's our closest, strongest neighbor? There was an occasion, I feel like I just mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's a good illustration of this. There was an occasion where I did a a wedding for a man um, who was not a Christian and had a pretty rough go of things. Um, He had been with the same woman for 20 years. She got cancer, and as soon as he heard she got cancer, he went out and cheated on her. He just... That's, that's where he was at. He had no way of processing his anger and his fear except to just blow everything up. And then he came back to her and he went, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did that. Let me do right by you. If you're going to die of this cancer, it was a brain tumor, pretty serious. I want to marry you first. Okay. And so they were friends of the friends. So I did the wedding. Um, and the guy was so unfamiliar of being around pastors and also so grateful that he literally promised me the world. He had all these plans to repay me, and he had talked all these things, and I didn't know at the time, but I shouldn't have put my trust in him. And generally, if I do a wedding, I don't really think about getting paid. Uh, I don't have a rate. If somebody hands me an envelope, fine. If they don't, it's not a big deal, okay? But he talked about it so much, and I got so used to that idea that about a week later after I'd done the wedding, uh, I found myself in a really hard place financially. And my first thought was, oh, I'm going to call that guy. He hasn't paid me yet, but I know he plans to. 
and he continued to dodge my voicemails and not call me back, and I started to get more and more worried, and in all honesty, the last few voicemails I left him were not a good witness. They weren't full of swearing or anger or any of that, but I was clearly desperate. I was in so much need, but I forgot that this guy didn't handle me before I met him. That the Lord had always been faithful to take care of me, but it's so easy for us to get distracted and choose some other source for our deliverance. Verse 3, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. I believe it's Isaiah. It might be one of the other prophets who says that Egypt is like a broken crutch. It's like a spear that you lean on, but because it's broken, it pierces your hand, right? And God is going to let that fail, okay? Because sooner or later, it always will. God is so faithful to let our plans work out poorly, okay? I've only heard one story to the contrary. I remember hearing a story once about a, a pastor who was very tired of the same routine every Sunday and never having a Sunday off. And so he thought, you know what, I'm going to tell my wife I'm sick. And then as soon as she leaves, I'm going to go play a round of golf. And so he left, and he went to the course, and he was out there. He was just having a killer game. And God and an angel were watching from heaven, and the angel just went, I don't understand. Why are you blessing him when he's being so clearly disobedient? And he said, just watch this. And the guy steps up, it's a par four, and he hits, and it just sails across, rolls onto the green, and just drops into the putt. And he goes, why would you bless him in that such way? And he goes, eh, who's he going to tell? <laughs> Outside of that one example, generally God is so faithful to let our plans and our false gods fall flat. And that's what he promises for Israel here. Verse 4, for though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach to Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit but shame and disgrace. He says, oh, you're going to get there. Oh, you're going to hand over the money. You're going to shake the hand, but it's going to fail you. Verse 6, an oracle on the beasts of the Negev. The Negev is the southern desert at the very bottom of Israel on the way to Egypt. And he prophesies, he gives an oracle, and he says, Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the back of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camel to a people that cannot profit them. They brave all the dangers of the Negev, and they're going to survive all of them just to waste their money and not get the protection they're seeking. Verse 7, Egypt's health is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still, or maybe a better paraphrase would be Rahab who does nothing. Okay. Rahab, not the one of the Old Testament, not, not the patriarch wife, uh, Rahab here is one of the mythical beasts of the ancient Near East, okay? Here, they're appealing to what looks like a dragon, but it's just, what do we call it, a paper tiger, right? It's just paper mache. It can't really save them. And so in the end, yes, she's going to be the beast who does nothing, okay? Congratulations, verse 8. And now go write it before it on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. And so here, God has a plan to validate Isaiah's ministry. So everybody knows this isn't coincidence. He says, what you've just written, the last few chapters we've read, write it and seal it up. Stick it in an envelope and save it for later. So when you say, this is what I said would happen, and God has done it, and they go, we don't remember you saying this, you can take this envelope sealed in the presence of witnesses, open it up and read aloud, word for word, what God said he would do that has now come to pass. Okay. Verse 9, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They need that. They need the sealed envelope. Why? Because they're going to find a way to explain it away. They're going to find a way to excuse it. They're going to find a way to set it aside and go, that's not what really happened. Verse 10, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. I'll remind you that G.K. Chesterton said the danger of the modern world is that we want a religion that agrees with us when we need a religion that disagrees with us. Right? And that was the people too. 
give us the pat on the back. Tell us everything's going to be okay. We want smooth things. We want illusions. Verse 11, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> we got to remember when we make anti-religious comments, when we stand against God, there's somebody on the other side. God is personal. And he says, let's talk about the one you always talk about, who is also me. That's what he says here. Therefore, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Okay. The idea here is that we've got a nice tall wall and it's starting to bubble and crack at the bottom. And the thing is, you know, you can take an office pool about when that thing's going to fall. It will fall, but nobody knows when it's going to happen, right? Verse 14, and it's breaking like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or dip water out of the cistern. He says it's going to be an epic failure. There will be nothing less left salvageable. Okay. Why? For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. That word there for returning, um, it's the word for repentance. Okay. What does salvation look like for Israel right now? What will keep them safe? Repentance and trust. Doing nothing. There's an old uh, hymn we used to sing when I first became a Christian. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But also, I want you to recognize that the way of repentance and the way of rest is the good way. It's the easy way. Okay? In Proverbs, it says, the way of the wicked is difficult. Okay. Isaiah is trying to speak reasonably here, and he says, what God has offered you is full protection that costs you nothing except to sit still, to wait, to trust. He says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling, verse 16, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee. Flee to Egypt? Fine, you'll flee from your enemies as well. And he says, and we'll ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left, like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on the hill. Now, this is a reversal of God's promises. God says one will stand against thousands, and here he says it's only going to take one to put thousands of you, you know, turn tail. When he says like a flagstaff on top of a mountain here, the idea is just a bareness. It's like the, the, uh, the shack in the middle of the cucumber field from chapter 1, right? Just desolate. Verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now there's two ways to read this. And both are true to God's character. One is God is still sitting there ready for repentance and rest. Ready for a turning away from their plans. Ready to just set everything right. Ready to lower the hand he has raised to discipline them. Or that in the bigger, broader sense, this is where God is going, whether it goes to their rebellion or not, right? That he is going to be gracious to you, and that's almost implied by the word gracious, right? The idea is they don't deserve it, and yet God is going to be good anyways. And that's what comes. They get all the fear of being wiped out and all the deliverance of a good God, despite their rebellion. Blessed are all those who wait for him, now again, either that's start waiting now, or it's the recognition, if God is going to be gracious in the long run, why wouldn't you serve that God now? Why wouldn't you trust him now? If God's intentions are better than you can imagine, why wouldn't you just lean into them now? Okay. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, it, he answers you. And the Lord, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. He says, yes, the road of suffering, affliction if you choose it, it's there, but so is the teacher. Again, it's discipline and not punishment. Verse 21, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Okay, what does that speak of? It speaks of God being actively involved in the leading of these people. A freshly humbled, a freshly repentant people who will be listening and therefore will hear God as if he's right there, confirming the way they're going and saying, yes, this is my way, go and do it. Verse 22, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. You know, it's interesting when God finally brings about judgment on Jerusalem, on Judea, uh, by bringing Babylon in and he takes them out, worshiping the gods and the terebinth trees uh, and the bales and the asterisks, that becomes a mark of history. When they return from Babylon, they throw all of that away. Now, they have their own problems. That's where the Pharisees come into play is in this post-Babylon world. They're still things because humans be humans, okay? But idolatry in the blatant way that takes place in First and Second Kings, that completely passes out just as God promises here uh, because they didn't deliver them, right? When Babylon came knocking, it wasn't Baal that saved them. All of their gods were left behind them because they couldn't save them anyway. Verse 23, and he will give rain for the seed which you sow in the ground and bread the produce of ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Okay. And so he's looking forward to this great deliverance and, and Israel being plenteous and populated with farming and sheep and all of that. Verse 26, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of the seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blows. Okay. Even the harm that he's going to bring them, he's going to be the one who brings healing. He's going to be the one who bandages them up. And then there's this weird statement here that the moon will be brighter and even the sun will be brighter than it's ever been. Uh, but it's a picture brightness, right? It's not hard to get the picture of what's going on here. It's the expulsion of darkness, okay? It's a time of light. Verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to his neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and a place on the jaws of the people, a bridle that leads astray. And so again, we see this theophany of God the warrior. But remember what we were just reading, it, the blow coming for Israel, is this who's administering it? No, this is judgment for their enemies. Verse 29, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. In other words, the result of all this is going to be worship. Verse 30, and the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff of the Lord lays on him will be the sound of tambourines and lyre. Battling with brandish arm, he will fight for them. Now, notice the juxtaposition here. To one group, it sounds like praise and music and joy. To the other, it sounds like terror and destruction. That's because what we're talking about here is deliverance. Okay, what we're talking about um, is, is tyrants and conquerors who have the city surrounded, and yet God is going to deliver them in such a way there will be two different responses. Verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. It is a pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kinders it. Okay. Now, this last part here talks about, uh, talks about a burning. Okay. A large fire kindled. And we're actually going to have to uh, sit on that because I think we're going to encounter it in chapter 31. Um, but just to spoil the plot, uh, what else do you do with 185,000 dead bodies? Okay. Generally, Israel was about burial. 
but in massive times of war, they would burn the bodies. In fact, when Jesus talks about Gehenna, this is the Valley of Hinnom, Tophet, where these things were burned. And I'm pretty sure we're going to see that in chapter 31 referenced by name. But that's what this last passage is talking about. It's talking about the cleanup. Remember, Isaiah is writing these words before this. Okay, verse 31, uh, excuse me, chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Sound familiar? That's how we started chapter 30. He repeats himself here. Okay. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So why do they go to Egypt? Strength, advanced military technology, right? But remember the lesson that Jonathan teaches his armor bearer? When Saul and his armies are camped against the Philistines and they're kind of in that holding pattern that precedes war and they're just sitting there and, and Saul is just waiting for something, probably for this whole thing to go away like a bad dream. And Jonathan wakes up and he goes, look, enough waiting. Let's just go up there and let's just see if God will give us the victory. And then he says this, he says, God can save by the many or by the few. There is no thing, uh, no such thing as being uh, outdone militarily if God is on your side. There is no such thing as being outnumbered if God is on your side. And let's be honest, even if you look at history with secular eyes, the biggest army doesn't always win. The most advanced technology doesn't always win the war. Why is that the case? It's because God is the architect of history, and he determines the outcomes, not how much stockpiled ammunitions you have. Not how many, uh, you know, strong allies you've made. And he says, instead, you should have looked to the Holy One of Israel. You should have consulted the Lord, verse 2. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Okay. Don't trust in anything you can put in your pocket. Don't trust in anyone who will eventually die and stand before God and give an account for his life, not fully and permanently, okay? Don't put our trust, the psalmist says, in princes, okay? Verse three, halfway through, when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. Strength will be nothing in those days. Verse 4, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. Okay, do you see the contrast here? It's a lion versus some shepherds. The shepherds aren't going to scare away the lion. He's already got the prey. He's focused on it. Uh, That's the difference here between Egypt and God. Verse 5, Like a bird hovering so the Lord will protect Jerusalem. Do you see how there's an offensive and a defensive illustration? Okay, like a lion to the enemies of Israel, like a protective bird to Jerusalem. Both are going to be proven true. He will protect it and deliver it. And because, remember, he's the one who brought Assyria, it says he will spare it and rescue it. Okay, God is working and doing multiple things here all at once. Verse six, turn to him, from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Another hymn I used to sing when I first became a Christian says, one day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly serve you now. That's the case that Isaiah is making. He's saying, why wait? Okay. Playing a game with God is like playing Candyland with a card counter, okay? I don't know if you guys know this, but there is no luck and no skill uh, involved in Candyland. It is a lesson in determinism. It's in the cards. It's all there. You're just going to go through it and find out, okay? But God knows what's in the cards. He knows how it's going to turn out. And so if he says, you should just fold, I won this round, why waste the time playing, okay? That's what he's saying here. And in top, on top of that, verse 8, the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man, 
A sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. Why don't you need Egypt? Why don't you need the men of Egypt or the horses of Egypt? Because God doesn't need any of that. He's going to do this with a sword, but not a human sword. He's going to use an angelic sword. Do you remember what Jesus tells Peter when Peter tries to defend him from being arrested in the garden and he cuts off that servant's ear? He says, don't you think I could call for legions of angels to deliver me? Peter, I don't need you. Okay. That's what, what Isaiah is saying here. What God is going to do, he doesn't need any allies for. He doesn't need any assistance. Okay. Verse 9, his rock shall pass away in terror and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Again, probably a reference to Gehenna. Okay. He says, the only thing I need for you to do is the cleanup. I'll take care of the battle. Okay. And so you can see here, and we'll continue this next week um, because this section continues for another couple of chapters. Isaiah is dogmatically against their current plan of salvation. But what strikes me about this passage is even though we know the story, they continue to stand with Egypt, they don't repent, God says, I've got a plan for that too. I know where this is going and I'm going to bring about my way. He's so merciful and so gracious. He wants the threat to be real. He wants them to taste the danger that they put themselves in with their foolishness. He wants the falseness of their alliance with Egypt to be known. But he's also not going to allow Assyria the victory here. He's not going to have happen what happens here. And we need to be careful because I think there were very human versions of this. You know, like exposing your kids to just enough danger so that they know it's there. I remember reading a book uh, about Amish parenting. And the guy was talking about disciplining his kids when there was a pond in the backyard. And so he just gave them no rules and stayed close to them until they fell in. And then he saved them from him and said, see, you've got to watch out for that. But he had one kid who was just too good at balancing and just couldn't seem to fall in. And so he hid in the bush and waited for his son to go by and shoved him into the lake. Okay. Only to just reach in and pull him out. There's only a limited comparison between that and what we're talking about here, right? Uh, and it's not just because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, okay? It's because his intentions can be totally trusted, okay? I wouldn't be surprised if this author's child is in counseling somewhere, okay? But it's a different thing when we're talking about the Lord. The plan he has here is intricate, and he will execute it, and his goal is purification. His goal is repentance. His goal is trust, I think it's worth landing on that tonight because, you know, none of us at this point in our lives are finished products yet. All of us are still doing what, dealing with the ongoing presence of sin, with our old man who still stands in rebellion to the Lord. All of us are currently weighing choices. Some of us are currently engaging in choices and convinced that even though we've sown weeds, we're going to get pumpkins. And some of us right now are experiencing the full frontal consequence of those choices. And the truth is, because of Jesus Christ, we can maintain that God's intentions for us are still good. That the things that he lets in our life, even the things that he lets us let into our life with our foolishness, he is going to use. When we read in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that all things includes this type of stuff. It includes our foolishness. It even includes our rebellion. Okay. God is faithful to bring about this good. And what is it? In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it's to conform us to the image of his son. And he's devoted to it. He's more committed than you are. And that's good news because there are mornings where we wake up and we want to throw in the towel. There's mornings where we wake up and the performance we give is half-hearted or totally external and has no heart in it at all. And there are even moments where we backslide, where we run away, where we are far from God. And yet, remember, he's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one who is lost. That same character we see here. 
And again, the lesson is, if that's the shepherd we serve, why wouldn't we listen? Why wouldn't we follow? Why wouldn't we obey? Why would we rebel against a God like this? That's the question Isaiah is asking his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray, pray that you'd continue that good work in us. That you would teach us the blessings of obedience and the foolishness of disobedience. That you would crush every idol that we trust in and that you would show up to deliver us from ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God like this and we know this to be true because we didn't come up with a plan to come back to you. We didn't pay the cost of setting things right. You sent your son. You had the plan from beginning of time. You became a man. You bore our sins upon your shoulder. You died in our place and you freely called us home. You freely offered us a way back to you and you freely promised to finish the work that you began in us till the day of Christ Jesus. We praise you for that. Help us to lean into that sanctification. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.